Hello, and thank you for joining me for today's episode of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. In this series, we hear from people in the field of eating disorders who share with us their personal and professional journeys, their experiences, their reflections, lived experience, and ideas that never quite get represented in this way in scientific journals and publications. I'm Kathy Pike, clinical psychologist and professor at Columbia University and the host of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. Today, I'm looking forward to talking with Rosielle Elwin. Rosie is a PhD candidate at Thompson Institute at the University of Sunshine Coast and La Trobe University. She's a lived experience researcher and a mental health consultant and has kindly agreed to join us today on the discussion of anorexia nervosa with a particular focus on terminal anorexia nervosa. So Rosie, welcome and thank you for for being with us. Thank you. I'd like to start at the beginning with your sharing with us a bit about your own journey and Mm -hmm. experience of an eating disorder. Right, so I uh, first developed uh, an eating disorder or anorexia nervosa at the age of eight but it was um, quite a while before I was diagnosed with anorexia because I had other complex mental health issues, which rather led to diagnostic overshadowing. So I was in the child youth mental health service um, from the age of 14. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had a first suicide attempt at the age of 12, then a second suicide attempt at the age of 14. Um, And then from the age of 14, I was in the child youth mental health service Um, receiving treatment for early psychosis, for um, self-injury, for depression, anxiety. And um, there was really that focus on um, my uh, experiences with psychosis, the suicidality, the self-harm. There was a lack of understanding of my presentation of trauma being such a young person um, and although I, it was recognized that I had an eating disorder and I was saying that I had an eating disorder and it, you know, my, my restriction was quite, quite severe and I had, you know, difficulties with exercise and all of these, these things and, and, um, water intake, um, it was kind of misconstrued as being due to my psychosis or my depression. Mm-hmm. So it was a long time before I was officially diagnosed with anorexia. I think part of that was waiting until I was an adult so I was I was very, very severely unwell. By the time I was finally diagnosed, I was um, it took a hospitalization where I was like in a very, very acute state. Mm-hmm. Um, and by then, I'd already been in a cycle of hospitalizations for the other mental health concerns, and you know, in and out of hospitals. and And this is um in in the context of the Australian healthcare system. So you have an expertise of knowing this disorder really well. We're so lucky to have you as part of this conversation. Really. As I hear you tell that story, you know, it's not unusual for people to not get the quote unquote right diagnosis the first Mm -hmm. time. And as you say, there were a lot of things going on for you. Um, But what finally got you to this point of clarification that the eating disorder is really key here in terms of identifying it and then addressing it so that you could pursue um, your own journey of recovery? You know, being being unwell for um, 
you know, most of my life. I'm now, you know, I'm turning 33 this year and I'm still regarded as severely unwell and my, you know, BMI pro, pro band that I'm in and have been for almost all of my adult life is is regarded in the, you know, severe extreme category. Um, so I've never really attained a, a um, status of a developmental sort of functional state that, you know, I don't really know what that that could do for my brain. And it's it's really, um, that's something, especially, you know, studying neuroscience, that's mm -hmm. something I think about all the time, about what would it do for me and potentially for my healing and recovery if I was able to get there. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that has been a major gap in, you know, the the ability for me to be able to to get further in my healing and recovery is I've never been able to sustain a long-term weight restoration and nutritional restoration. There's been these like moments in hospital, but then followed by immediate, you know, relapse and deterioration. And the hospitalizations have always been extremely traumatic. Mm -hmm. um, but what has been really important for me is, you know, through through these cycles of hospitalizations that were, you know, became really traumatic. And then I completely sort of opted out from treatment because it was so traumatic. Um, a turning point for me became finding a psychologist who held hope for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I had been turned away from hospitals. I'd been turned away from so many clinicians who were like, you are untreatable, an intractable case. And and had said that about my psychosis as well, my my diagnosis of um, schizophrenia, which was then then um, altered to schizoaffective disorder diagnosis. I've been, I've been recommended palliative care for both my anorexia and my schizoaffective disorder. So, um, you know, clinicians were saying, you know, this is, you know, you're, you're beyond help, you're beyond hope. Um, but then I, you know, I found a psychologist who wasn't see, who was seeing someone with a innate capacity to heal mm -hmm. and where I didn't have hope. Um, and I was under a community treatment order. Um, so I, you know, I, I was being forced to kind of find a psychologist. Um, but he held hope for me. Mm -hmm. And it was more about he wanted to focus on my quality of life and reducing the level and the extreme um, severity of my suffering. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't about trying to push me into a level of recovery that I couldn't achieve. It was very much about us working together on the meaning in my life, the quality of my life. And, you know, achieving things that were important to me, like concentrating on, you know, my um, studies, mm -hmm. um, you know, engaging in life more deeply, connecting mm -hmm. with myself. Um, so it was it was really that that self-connection point mm -hmm. and the self-compassion point that became life changing. You've taken us in this conversation quickly to this idea of recovery. What is recovery? Mm -hmm. And what you are describing really is at the front of this evolved understanding of what recovery really is all about and quality of life and incorporating the, the individual's definition of what, what does it mean to live in recovery and in a state of, of journeying with meaning and purpose and, and uh, your comment about 
being in such a different place, even though your weight may be in, in similar places, really resonates for me in terms of understanding the complexity of recovery. And yeah, I think part that. of it as well is what was really helpful for me is being able to let go of, and for my family as well, family members being able to do this, is let go of the expectations and pressure of a symptom-free remission type recovery. And once we did that, we were able to um, be more compassionate with each other and for myself. I think a turning point for me was, and this really helped to communicate with my family members as well and for them to, you know, um, take some of the pressure off the expectations of a symptom-free, you know, remission um, perspective of recovery was I started to engage more with a chronic illness perspective and a disability affirmative perspective of, um, you know, if I go my whole life of, you know, never, never achieving a full um, illness-free recovery, and if I, you know, remain with a level of having anorexia in my life for my whole life, what would that look like and what would that mean? Mm -hmm. um, and then when I started thinking about that and learning about harm reduction, mm -hmm. um, it, it created a level of freedom and space um, in my life and, and relief, psychological mm -hmm. relief as well. Um, and then the same thing happened for family members because, you know, they were able to take a step back and stop blaming themselves. And I could stop feeling a level of burdensomeness and blame and like self-hatred and worthlessness. And it was able to be like healing can just unfold and keep unfolding. And what happened with that as well was the more I was in concentrating on self-connectedness and, and healing, um, I could really explore like the meanings of what was going on with my eating disorder rather than feeling like it had to be taken away and it couldn't be, you know, there in my life. And I could look at what it actually was, what its function actually is, mm -hmm. um, you know, rather than trying to guard it and feeling like I was defensive of it. And from there on, I was connecting with myself and then, you know, focusing on more of like trauma healing and other things going on. And that opened things up. It really, you know, became, and then I started fearing less about engaging in medical you know, going to a GP appointment because for years I, I, you know, wasn't able to even, you know, get an ECG or get a blood test because I was like so traumatized from, you know, hospitals and, you know, being in restraints and confinement. So, wait, you know, it became safer for me um, to be in a harm reductive framework as well. And just for clarification for any listeners who aren't familiar with that terminology, when we talk about harm reduction, we're talking about shifting our mindset from eliminating a symptom to thinking about how do we, as Rosie, as you're saying, how do we acknowledge that certain aspects of life or behavioral symptoms that are part of a syndrome um, may be with us, but how do we minimize the negative impact of those symptoms and how do we pursue enhanced quality of life, um, despite the enduring aspect of the symptom. The experience that you've shared with us in terms of 
long-standing anorexia nervosa puts you in really good stead uh, and is why we asked you if you would join us for this conversation around the potential criteria, the potential description diagnosis of terminal anorexia that was proposed by um, Dr. Gaudiani and uh, Alyssa Bogetz and Joel Yeager. And mm -hmm. it's a proposal that has been met with a significant response. And I feel very strongly that we need to hear from people who know a lot about this disorder and um, living with it. And as you say, knowing how in your experience to have a high quality of life, but also a very precarious life. Yes. And so know it very personally um, and very thoughtfully have you have commented on this proposed uh, diagnosis and have shared your view in publication in the Journal of Eating Disorders. So I'd like to invite you, Rosie, to share with us what your initial reaction was to this proposal. Mm -hmm. And why don't we start there and then we can go into more specific questions around what you see as the particular concerns that you may have. Sure. Um, so I think, first of all, my per perception of it was that it was coming from a, a compassionate place. Um, although that it, it might have perhaps been developed and then published um, too quickly without uh, enough of a rigorous approach um, to consulting experts across the field, um, particularly as it's such a sensitive and contentious topic with such potential for harm. And I think maybe also the subsequent media communications as well um, concerned me that they might have been done too rapidly. Um, I think with the quickness of this, uh, some distress and alarm unfolded that might not have happened if it had, you know, come about more slowly with, you know, considerable consultation and cautiousness. Um, I did have some immediate, on first reading it, a, a definite, like, physical and emotional response because of what I'd experienced as a patient of, you know, being told I was beyond hope and like many times, but also that the the time directly before I had attempted suicide in, in a ward because I had had the treatment team, you know, give me the final, like, you know, I'd been recommended palliative care. I'd been recommended, you know, discharge from the hospital because I'd had the, while I was still, you know, there to seek, you know, treatment, but I, I'd also told the team that I, I believe nothing would help me. So I was, I was myself saying that I, you know, I'd given up hope on myself, but then, you know, the psychological impact of having the team say that we've come to the point where we, we believe also, we agree that nothing, there is nothing to be done. Mm -hmm. And while at the time, which I, you know, written about in my, my, response to to their proposed diagnostic criteria um i felt there was a lot of honesty in what the team was saying i was so the level of suffering it created was was profound um because i it was like there was a level of relief but it was like the relief gave way to such deep suffering 
And it was like it was confirming all of the trauma and the, like, the desperation that was underneath, which was like the the little person, the the vulnerable self, the the child self within me that was desperate for life, that no one could see and was trapped in the anorexia itself, that still that I hadn't even known was still there because I'd felt so hopeless and I was so suicidal. Until that moment, I hadn't realized that that seed of self and that seed of yearning for life actually existed until that moment mm-hmm. because I that depth of suffering I I hadn't known was possible mm-hmm. until I had had everyone say we have completely given up hope for you there is nothing we can do there is no further treatment possible for you and you know and I was being kept apart from other patients and other patients themselves who are ill and struggling and I think it speaks to the compassion of people with eating disorders who you know often struggle to imagine recovery for themselves but want to fight for other people in the Mm -hmm. same situation Mm -hmm. Um, we struggle to be applying self-compassion to ourselves but but Mm -hmm. so much so we'll respond to other people in desperate need other other patients were, were going to the team and saying what's happening to Rosie like why is Rosie being kept kept apart from us? Why isn't Rosie eating meals with us? Even if Rosie can't eat, Rosie should still be at the table with us to feel like, you know, she's part of this, she belongs, mm-hmm. you know, to normalize sharing the space. Mm-hmm. And the team was saying it's a different case, it's a unique, special case. Just just concentrate on your own recovery. And I was, you know, being they still saw you. Yeah, they they saw me as as unrecoverable. No, but um, your the fellow patients. Still- oh yeah, the the fellow the fellow patients absolutely were were saying there are things we can do to try and you know alleviate the hopelessness and the, the suffering, and they they were seeing that there's things that could be done, and or or even even if you know they weren't thinking about oh it would be triggering to us or anything like that. They were they were scared for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and they wanted something to be done. But yeah, I hadn't known that in that state, as hopeless as I was, and and you know, the the treating team had said, you know, the level of your your despair and your suffering frightens us and there's nothing we can do. I was, you know, as a psychiatrist had said to me, You you frighten me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important too, the countertransference there of, you know, he he felt um a bit powerless pal- in in how to help me. And we had a very frank conversation about that, that at one level I felt was very honest mm-hmm. and in a way that, you know, he had said, how do I help you? Like, I, I don't know what to do. I, I feel like there's nothing I can do. And I said, I, I don't think there is. I think there's nothing. Mm-hmm. But until the team had said, we think there's nothing we can do, we've given up hope and, like, you're beyond help, that's when that that. I hadn't known that I could feel even any more suffering on top of what I felt. And it was that extreme level of no one is ever going to try and save you. You've come to the end mm-hmm. and your life is no longer worth fighting for. It was a profound level of suffering. I, I, and t- like, it was, it was truly frightening. And then, then I um, uh, attempted suicide in the ward. I think that that level of the psychological impact 
um, was why I, I wanted to respond to mm-hmm. the proposed criteria because there's there's lots of and and other you know important things that I think needed to be voiced about you know countertransference and ambivalence and communication but that in particular that dynamic um, was something that um, until I had experienced I thought was really important it was that that importance of of other people holding hope for you um, that's so important the you've said it a number of times and I yeah. have had a a dear friend who says, um, you know, lose hope, game over. And it um, really is true. And actually, we know from uh, data on suicide that it's not degree of depression that's most predictive of suicide attempts, but actually hopelessness. And so the point that you raise around the therapist who ultimately conveyed to you that they had hope that you could have a quality of life um, and how healing that was and the harm caused by clinicians saying there's no hope brings to the top of mind for me the question around the proposed diagnosis of terminal anorexia, the the risk of this diagnosis in terms of um, it being harmful itself and Mm -hmm. the oath that healthcare providers and uh, mental health providers, mental healthcare providers uh, want, you know, the commitment to first do no harm. Right. So I, I wonder if what you would say about the concerns of this, category or this diagnosis of terminal anorexia nervosa in terms of violating the commitment of quote unquote first do no harm well i think what's really interesting about this is what after this this paper presented these proposed criteria Mm -hmm. Some of the responses that have have come since then, not only in the lived experience papers, but a lot of the discourse that's happened since then um, and the, like, uh, responses from clinicians uh, and and researchers as well, is I I was seeing themes that really came out to me of inequitable systems of care, iatrogenic harm, hopelessness, both from clinicians and patients, the sense of hopelessness and despair. And how these factors in, you know, interrelate to treatment, engagement, and prognosis. Mm-hmm. So none of those things to me are a terminal illness. Mm-hmm. Those are all very different things, and those are very separate. And malnutrition and its con- consequences, treatment, non-engagement, hopelessness, and suicidality, iatrogenic harm, co-occurring different conditions or comorbidities. Those things don't constitute a terminal illness in and of itself. They're very different things, but they seem to describe and characterize the experience of a longstanding uh, eating disorder patient and a person who might be given the prognosis of a terminal of terminal anorexia. Mm-hmm. So they seem to describe a type of suffering that our treatment system doesn't know how to respond to. Mm-hmm. So I think that is something that, you know, when we're talking about first do no harm, are we talking about a type of suffering that our treatment system isn't set up to respond to and there's not enough training for? 
And I see that as a really important conversation that this discourse has illuminated mm-hmm. um, and that that might be what we need to be focusing in on. So maybe this is what, you know, the proposed criteria could, you know, be altered sort of rather than, you know, do we need this proposed criteria or do we need to focus on longstanding eating disorders and a particular type of experience within longstanding eating disorders of how people continue to experience a longstanding eating disorder and then disengage from treatment because of these things or why, you know, treatment is then experienced as harmful. I find what you're saying sort of a light bulb moment, Rosie, because the idea that in our healthcare system that is woefully inadequate in terms of addressing a very complex and disorder that has dimensions that we don't fully understand. And we have treatments that work for some people and some percentage, but we know that we don't have exactly, we don't have a silver bullet, as they say. So to shift the burden from a focus on the system not being able to treat a very serious disorder to something's something about the disorder itself um, is really a sleight of hand that's highly problematic. Yeah, I mean, I've never seen before a terminal illness describing hopelessness as and belief in the futility of care as part of that terminal terminal illness. Mm-hmm. Like I, I haven't seen that before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, feeling that you despair of ever recovering, like the psychological, and that's not to ignore the psychological impact of having a chronic condition, mm-hmm. but I've never seen that as characterizing a terminal illness that has a pro- predictable progressive stage to inevitable death right and you know experiencing iatrogenic harm you know w- describing like a non-response to like quality care but like the iatrogenic harm type factors that we're you know using to describe long-standing eating disorder patients but the hopelessness and belief in the futility of treatment to me mm-hmm. is like we're not describing a terminal illness mm-hmm. and, you know, untreated malnutrition because of treatment, non-engagement, you know, if if you draw a alignment to someone having untreated diabetes because they are feeling depressed and they've neglected their health and then they go on to die from you know, the untreated consequences of their diabetes. You wouldn't say that they are diagnosed with terminal diabetes or terminal depression. Mm -hmm. They disengage from treatment and then they died as a consequence of that. That's Mm -hmm. not the same thing as having terminal diabetes or terminal depression. So like, to me, it's like, why are we conflating these terms? Is it needed? So So these are really important points that you're making, Rosie. When you think about this proposed criteria, one of the things that has come up is this confusion around palliative care, end of life, understanding complexities around end of life treatment. Tell me what you think about that. So I 
I don't disagree with the importance of talking about the nature of suffering, relief from suffering, the desire for dignity um, when approaching death. You know, death happens to us all, and you know, we would all ideally like a you know good death, a comfortable death, dignity. Um, but there are really important factors at stake here when it comes to talking about physician-assisted death or MAID when it comes to anorexia nervosa. And I think, you know, a number a number of things here, when we're, when we're talking about palliative care, physician-assisted death or MAID requests and hospice care, it's all getting very conflated. Mm -hmm. um, because, I mean, my understanding, and this certainly is my understanding when I was recommended palliative care, both for my schizophrenia and my anorexia nervosa, is I understood palliative care to um, be oriented uh, um, within a model of relieving suffering, but not to hasten death. Correct. And the consensus um based definitions that i understood and also those you know within the world health organization were that active holistic care for individuals for you know palliative care involved um, prevention early identification uh, management of physical issues palliative care may positively influence the, the course of the illness um, provide support to patients to live as fully possible until death um, and intends neither to hasten nor to postpone death, affirms mm -hmm. life and recognizes dying as a natural process. Mm -hmm. Right. Let's and, just to be concrete, palliative care can be delivered at any course, any yes. moment in the course of a condition. So uh, just to underscore your point. Yes. And I read a paper by uh, Komo Vu, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, 2022, um, mm -hmm. who pointed out that there appear to be two views of palliative care specialists on how the hastening death component could be constructed in palliative care, a majority view and a minority view. So according to their articles, a majority view prohibits hastening death in palliative care, mm -hmm. um, and this prohibition was reported as being shared by most palliative care specialists. So believing that there was no place for physician-assisted death or MAID. Mm -hmm. And the minority view was that palliative care specialists argued that in exceptional cases, hastening death should be allowed. Um, and some palliative care units do offer physician-assisted death or MAID, and others had a policy that seek alternatives for, you know, if a patient requested MAID or physician-assisted death, but their physician conscientiously objects to it. So when we look at what's being argued for in the proposed diagnosis for terminal anorexia nervosa, when Gaudiani, Jaeger, and Shreem had um, published their uh, second paper, which was that uh, terminal anorexia nervosa requires uh, consensus for palliative care, um, you know, I think we need to be looking at where all of this sits within models of care. Does physician-assisted death or MAID sit within a palliative care or hospice model? Are there multiple models? Um, if they're arguing that it does, which they appear to have done, is that because they sit within the viewpoint that argues in allowing for hastened death in exceptional cases? And what model would that be? And where would anorexia nervosa sit in that model? And I think that's important for the field to look at as well. 
Um, many of us don't, you know, um, have a lot of experience with palliative care. And I'm not necessarily stating that this is either right or wrong, but asking, you know, for, for more definition around this. How does this model understand the role of hastening death within the value system of palliative care and hospice? And I think that's important for patients and caregivers to ask when entering into palliative care and hospice as well. Um, does that align with their values and for clinicians and researchers when we're looking at this complicated topic? I always understood palliative care and hospice care as being about affirming uh, life, relieving suffering and seeking to provide care, comfort and dignity, but not hastening death. Other people might have a different understanding of that. There's another two critical points that I really want to make. And one of these issues is that I think there are many covert or hidden meanings behind what death can represent to someone with anorexia nervosa. And if, you know, we're considering uh, physician assisted death or medical aid in dying, and, and palliative care, there absolutely needs to be consideration of these factors. So we may have very different symbolic and felt relationships to death and life compared to someone who does not have an eating disorder. And making a request for a physician-assisted death or maid may be an attempt to meet these hidden underlying needs. So for example, some studies about euthanasia and physician-assisted death or maid requests for people with other conditions, such as cancer and neurodegenerative degenerative disease, have also found covert existential and spiritual desires um, underlying the requests, including mm -hmm. desire for care, desire for connectedness, respect, seeking a sense of autonomy and authorship over life, wanting to feel rehumanized, transforming the present moment for a sense from a sense of passivity by undertaking a project, mm -hmm. um, to reclaim a sense of control or freedom over medical restraints, creating a sense of finality and losing a sense of uncertainty mm -hmm. to imagine a desirable future for oneself where illness didn't exist mm -hmm. to feel that their suffering is recognized, feeling a relief from a sense of worthlessness as well. Now that's different. Um, those are, you know, recognized terminal illnesses, but when we move to people with eating disorders, including anorexia, People with eating disorders commonly express feeling unworthy of treatment and may express feelings of guilt for how their eating disorder may impact someone close to them. Studies have also found that those of us with anorexia may feel that we need to be extremely unwell in order to feel that our suffering is valid and that we're deserving of help. And people with anorexia may express a sense of pervasive unworthiness in our feelings of hopelessness, passive suicidality, and the desire for death to occur through starvation. We may have uh, complex beliefs about relationships to death, such as regarding death from starvation as a way to self-punish or self-harm, to die prematurely as a way to provide a less painful death, to make our death uh, less impactful to others, to mm -hmm. as starvation to express our wish to disappear, or express a belief that we don't have the right to live. Mm -hmm. So those are really, really complicated meanings. And it's important to talk to a person about what death represents to them and the meanings it has. Mm -hmm. Because it may be that when someone makes a request for physician-assisted death or, or maid, they may actually be trying to meet those needs through that means. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that yeah. is something that yeah, has been overlooked. Mm -hmm. Is there one other thing you wanted to say? 
Yes, I did also um, want to talk about the longevity of diagnoses. So um, diagnostic labels tend to stick and have a long lasting effect and can create a lot of power on treatment pathways far into the future, even if you're labeled as being in remission. So an example from my own life is after being diagnosed as having intractable schizophrenia, which was then labeled, re-diagnosed as being intractable schizoaffective disorder, um, I was diagnosed, I was recommended, sorry, as, um, you know, seeking a palliative care pathway. I was told, you know, I would never recover. I should be living in a, in a um, supported living facility. I was told by clinicians, you know, you'll never be able to hold a job, go to university. You'll be dependent on, you know, I was on a, on a whole suite of antipsychotics. I had no quality of life. I was told you'll be dependent on these medications for life. I'm now completely free of antipsychotics and I have been for years. Mm -hmm. um, I still have some occasional sort of residual delusional thoughts, but they are completely manageable and very fleeting and sort of don't interrupt my quality of life at all. Mm -hmm. um, but I had this completely hopeless picture of my future. Um, the prognosis was absolutely abysmal. Mm -hmm. um, and when I recovered from my schizoaffective disorder, clinicians would still read schizoaffective disorder in remission in my case file and refuse to treat me um, and tell me I was too complex. And it also affected my prognosis of my anorexia because when clinicians would read the anorexia, intractable anorexia, combined with intractable psychosis, even when they were reading um, intractable schizoaffective disorder in remission, mm -hmm. they would believe that I was, you know, a hopeless mm -hmm. case and untreatable. Um, and they would still be recommending that I live in a halfway house and take antipsychotics, even though they're reading that the schizoaffective disorder is in remission. So this was happening years after I hadn't had any other psychotic episodes. Mm -hmm. um, and the psychological impact of a diagnosis should also not be underestimated. So not only for, you know, the person themselves, but also for how clinicians view treatment options and our likelihood of response. So think just thinking of the power dynamics involved for a highly vulnerable person with anorexia nervosa to say to their treatment provider who's diagnosed them with terminal, you know, the proposed diagnosis, terminal anorexia, think of them to say, and this is based on the proposed criterion for clear and consistent determination by a patient who possesses decision-making capacity that additional treatment would be futile knowing their actions would result in death. So thinking of that criteria for, imagine what it would take for this person diagnosed with terminal anorexia to say to their clinician, I've changed my mind, you know, I want to re-engage in treatment. I have this seed of hope again. You know, maybe it's not futile. Mm -hmm. And maybe I don't have quite hope, but, you know, I want to try again. I'm scared, but, you know, what do you think? Like, think about, the impact and the courage that would take. And even if the person found the voice to do that, the impact it's, it would be for them, the clinician to record terminal anorexia in remission in their case history. Like, is that even possible? How does that sit? How does that sound? Mm -hmm. um, and what would the impact be on their future by mm -hmm. having having that? And would the, the person themselves feel guilt at trying to roll this back because of also you know many of us are quite aware 
of our impact on others. Like many times I felt like I couldn't re-engage in treatment with my psychologist because I was like, I can't put them through this again when I have, you know, I'm unlikely to achieve a full symptom-free recovery. So I was like, am I just dragging my psychologist through, you know, the distress of watching me deteriorate again and again and again? You know, we're often quite sensitive to to other people. So Rosie, the these additional two points around the issue of meaning of death and understanding what that means and and the many layers and the many different meanings that are possible. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the last point that you're raising here about what the enduring impact is of a diagnosis and and the potential risk of a term like terminal anorexia, when we don't have good criteria for what that means, so people will survive a diagnosis of terminal anorexia and what are the implications of that um, would be quite, quite uh, complex and disconcerting as you describe. You clearly have thought carefully and deeply about this topic and have added to the conversation and with a thoughtfulness that is so, so important at this moment. I, I want to recognize the journey you've been on, the challenges you've had, the courage that you've demonstrated and that you continue to demonstrate and the the sheer intellectual rigor and matched by really a tremendous compassion and heart that I think make the world of difference in terms of understanding what's going on, helping me understand what's going on for you and your perspective, but also your sharing your understanding with so many of us so that we can do better. And as you say, lean into, make sure we're paying attention to the systems issues that are part of this story and better understand the etiology uh, and the treatments that really matter and will make advances with anorexia nervosa. I am so grateful that you found that child inside, that you had that glimmer of hope, that you found the clinician who could carry hope for you when you needed it to be carried by someone else. I'm glad you're studying the neurobiology, the gut biome, with your experience and insight and thoughtfulness, I think you're going to continue to help us increase our understanding and grow as a field. So thank you very, very much. Thank you. It's been a privilege.